You're listening to The Report Card. The Report Card podcast is a commentary show about contemporary American politics and international affairs with your hosts, Scott Dworkin and Grant Stern, where they grade what they're seeing in the news each week. Invite activists, elected officials, and newsmakers to chat and to take your questions, too. You're listening to The Report Card. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. I'm your co-host, Scott Dworkin. How are you doing, Grant? It is hot, but not as hot as Little Elm, Texas, I hear. How about that's, yourself? That's what I hear. Is it's uh, different and humid and 150 billion degrees. It's it's uh, very hot, very hot. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'm just surviving. You know, luckily I don't have an outside job. I've got a lot of friends with it that have outside gigs, and that cannot be fun at the moment. Oh, yeah. Uh, working outside right now. It's not just not a lot of fun, but it could be a risk to your health. Uh, so stay hydrated, everybody, please. We want you to keep listening. The, obviously, this show is titled uh, something special uh, in regards to you know how many GOP link strategies can happen in just a month. Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts about the July 4th shooting? I mean, can there be anything more horrifying? Like, seriously, can there be anything more horrifying than going to a 4th of July parade of all places and meeting a mass shooter there, a sniper, you know, someone removed from the crowd, uh, blasting away, and apparently, and this is the scariest, most horrible part, someone who wanted to conduct multiple mass shootings or maybe maybe even try to get away with it because this mass shooter uh, disguised themselves. Uh, you know, I, I was reading about this and I mean, just think about this. The only way that they quickly identified this horrific human being as a person of interest, the only way they did it was by DNA. And they did it quickly. So, I mean, I, we have to take our hats off to law enforcement for a very rapid uh, investigation. But, I mean, it's just of all the places you think you'd just be safe, right? And on all the days. That, yeah, that should I, be it, isn't it? I don't have any friends that are in law enforcement that are really supportive of lax gun laws either. I don't know one. Not, not one. And uh, most support you know removing assault weapons from the streets most support taking weapons away from a lot of people just overall um so i, I it's very interesting to see this divide it, it the, the disinformation that has spread like a virus for decades about the second amendment and everything that goes along with it is insane um and, and i think people need to start being called out for it more um, just about shootings, level of shootings, uh, percentages and uh, numbers in different cities and what's actually linked to that because uh, a gun, you know, kills people and people being able to access it. I don't think a lot of these um, acts of violence would obviously happen without those weapons of war. Well, you know, people tend to forget what caused the very first assault weapons ban. Right. Um, it happened in 1994. And a lot of people credit 
that ban with Republicans taking over the House for the first time in decades uh, during the 1994 midterm elections. But prior to that, um, you know, crime was the number one issue in the early 1990s in America. And it was the police uh, who could not protect themselves that really spurred lawmakers on to act. You know, it wasn't just like, uh, you know, Democrats got this idea. We got to ban assault weapons. Not at all. It was the cops. And there was this particularly uh, famous shooting that happened in uh, Los Angeles. And it was like an armed robbery. You know, the the helicopters were up recording all of it. Uh, Probably uh, Katie Tour's parent, uh, because, you know, Katie Tour's parent was actually the, like, you know, she transitioned, but back then, uh, you know, she was uh, a, a journalist and a, a pioneer in journalism, uh, award-winning pioneer in journalism uh, by using helicopters to, uh, you know, make the news. And um, it was like this horrifying bank robbery where all the robbers had assault weapons and the cops had guns and, you know, handguns. And and that was like one of the big catalysts for the first assault weapons ban. So. You know, these things have always been a threat to law enforcement and and they forever will be a threat to law enforcement, Uh, first and foremost, because law enforcement, you know, they're armed and they're put in a lot more situations where there could be a firefight than the average citizen. Um, That being said, it's like law enforcement can't defend anybody against an AR-15 attacker. All they can do is try to track the person down. And, and right. that's just the bottom line. And the NRA promoted that stupid myth I won't repeat here for so many years. And good God, how many people actually believe that? How many people yeah. bought guns just because of that? It's, it's scary. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just going to get, get worse. I mean, it, I, I just don't understand. At some point, you know, aren't we willing to try everything, including removing the, the these weapons of war from the market? You know, like like maybe even I'd be willing to do a temporary ban and see how it goes. You know, like let's take them off the streets and then let's look at the numbers a year later. You know what I mean? Like let's do yeah. something, but we gotta we gotta put a stop to it. It's a as our friend Dr. Joseph Sacharin from John Hopkins Medical Center would say, it's a public health concern, and it obviously is. Like I. I I have friends and family who did not want to go to any other public events because of that shooting, right? So people are scared to go outside in their neighborhood because they know, well, you know, this guy that I know, he has a he has a gun. I know he has an AR-15, and he's crazy, and I don't know why he has a gun, but I don't want to go anywhere that he's going to go. And I saw him post on Facebook that he's going to go here. And it could be an innocent dude. I don't know. But, like, it's, there's no training in regards to everything. People in the Secret Service, like, they go through so much extensive training for firearms at a constant basis. Like, if you want to own one of these things, there should be a, a, a reason why. Like, are you in the military and are you overseas fighting a war? And that should be the only circumstance that you have it because it has no purpose whatsoever. It's saying... I defend my property. That that's bullshit. 
I don't believe it. I'm not going to buy it. I'll never buy it. And I don't, I don't understand why people, people need it, but they're not going to be able to eat the deer if they shoot a deer with that crap, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, and uh, the cavitation of the bullets just shreds flesh. I mean, it's, it's not like shooting somebody with a, a handgun or a shotgun or, you know, any other kind of weapon. It really is a weapon of war. I mean, right. The, the purpose of war is to kill or disable the enemy, right? And uh, when you think about it, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, to use that kind of weapon, right? Because, hey, uh, let's say that, uh, you know, you're firing a lot of shots down the field, right? Uh, let's right. say that you're using an AR-15 or an AK-47 uh, in Ukraine and, you know, you're a Ukrainian infantryman. And you're trying to disable uh, the Russian infantrymen on the other side. You want to know that if that bullet strikes the enemy who's invading your home, that it's going to stop them from being an enemy combatant. And that's what the AR-15 is very efficiently designed to do. It is only different in the sense that it doesn't have the the automatic fire selection that the military grade uh, weapon has like that's it you know the it doesn't have the ability to fire multiple rounds with one gun with one press but i mean a 21 year old kid could fire what 60 times in a, about two minutes injure over two dozen people murder seven leave a two-year-old boy as an orphan. We don't need that in this country. No, it's there's no war. Devastating. Here. Devastating. No, that, that, that is the war, I guess. And, you know, speaking of, of wars, UK won their war over their bullshit artist in chief. Uh, Boris Johnson is resigning. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, he he was always like a Trump, and then they're trying to act like he's some statesman and he's evolved and blah blah blah. But he was always awful in my in my mind. I mean, he's just absolutely atrocious, and he was kind of like Trump's accomplice overseas of sorts. They're obviously Putin and Erdogan, and there's a lot of other people who were along for the ride. But you know, they seem to get along like little messy hair buddies. Yeah, I mean Boris Johnson, you're speaking about of course uh, a lot of people called him like bojo or bojo the clown uh boris johnson just tendered his resignation as prime minister and you know there's a lot of people that are calling him to step down as the caretaker prime minister as well uh it'll be interesting to see if he heeds those calls and leaves immediately or tries to stick around um a lot of people say that that he should let the deputy prime minister uh, Don McRab be the caretaker uh, until elections are, are uh, you know, handled within their party because it's it's very different there in the parliamentary system. And now for the second time in just four years, you're going to have a political party with 200,000 members select the prime minister of the United Kingdom. Uh, and as far as Boris Johnson himself, I mean, look, you know, he was about an 85% of Trump. I mean, he's got all the horrible things of Trump. His scandals had scandals, all right? 
Um, you know, he broke the rules pretty freely and just, uh, you know, like that in the end, it, it, it wasn't even, and it's surprising to say that it wasn't even breaking the rules that, that brought him down. It was just the public finally in the UK, of course, uh, finally after years and years and years, just finally gave up on all the scandals. I mean, and then his ministers gave up. Um, it shows you the power that the associates, the ministers, uh, have, and it shows you how if these Republicans who aided and abetted Trump for four years had actually taken a stand for at least one point in their lives, maybe the day after he tried to overthrow the government, um, maybe then, maybe then he could have been stopped, you know, I mean, if. Six of his cabinet members had just resigned suddenly, say, when, you know, he started uh, using the Oval Office to engage in witness intimidation during impeachment hearings. Maybe he would have just gotten the message and and walked out. It's possible. I mean, it is possible. So, I mean, I'm happy for our friends in the UK, but uh, just like here, they're going to be living with the foul after effects of a demagogue and liar for decades to come. And in their case, they have even bigger problems than America in a certain regard. We have, uh, we have a problem in that our democracy is threatened. And if our democracy is toppled, everything else will start to fall apart rapidly. Over there, thus far... It appears that their democratic institutions have held against Boris Johnson only by the thinnest of hairs. Okay. The man has not left yet, and there is nothing they, that anybody can do to force him out. All right. Um, even a vote of no confidence of the parliament doesn't actually force the prime minister to leave. This is something I learned when they were going through the prorogation of parliament debates, which is that. Uh, you know, uh, Boris Johnson basically sent Parliament home to try and force Brexit through without Parliament being around. And there was a series of court hearings about what he could and couldn't do. Britain has an unwritten constitution. It's all very complicated. But the gist and sting of it is, is that even the vote of no confidence, which people assume of no confidence vote means that the prime minister has to leave. The prime minister could stay. So the final chapter of Boris Johnson is not yet written. We saw that Trump's final chapter was ultimately his most hideous. So we can't say that there's a final judgment on Boris Johnson today. But what we can say is that he destroyed the UK economy he found four years ago. Destroyed it. Or three years ago, excuse me. Destroyed it. Um you know, pulling out of the EU, out of the common market, with no trade agreements. It has devastated the people that voted for Brexit. Absolutely devastated them. They voted for it because of lies, and now they're suffering because of the sad reality that the UK's position in the world has been sharply diminished because of its departure from a much larger block of its neighbors only a short ride away uh, under the, 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 you know, 
uh, in the Euro Tunnel. Uh, I, I, I hate to see it happen. It's such a lovely place, you know. Uh, there's there's so many wonderful Brits, uh, you know, so many m- wonderful uh, citizens of the United Kingdom, and they deserve a lot better. And I don't know how they they get out of this. I honestly don't. There's just no way that any normal human being could fashion enough trade deals fast enough to fix the void that Boris Johnson and his Brexit created. Yeah, he's a master propagandist. And I think one of the things that I always found interesting is he used the Trump stylings, which is you, you have a key word of sorts where you have an issue and uh, his issue was a bus, a Brexit bus that he had driving around. Um, and he wanted the to bus kind of cover it. Exactly. And so he started talking about how he collected and painted and made buses, his collectible buses. And he made up this story and you could tell him like he, he sat there just with this nonsense talking about when I, co- I collect these buses and I paint these buses and, you know, I just love them. And what he would talk about, people were like, well, look at this. Boris Johnson collects buses and it just totally trumped this entire narrative of the, the bus that was going around with Brexit and the messaging that he had with it and the campaign behind it and uh, the, the disinformation he was spreading around it and the lies and he was able to cover that up. And it's a Trump tactic where, you know, he has some sort of keyword like Russia or, or you know, uh, and he tries to pull away with it by owning the word and then, you know, making it muddying the waters. Like instead of talking about his Russian business ties, which we talked about, he started talking about Russian collusion. So he would talk Trump about Russia. Is, yeah. 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 Trump, that is. And, and so, like, it's just. They were two peas in a pod. I don't even know. Um, obviously, I we mean, have... in his own way, I want you to think about how much worse Boris is in his own way. Uh, Boris is actually highly educated. Uh, Boris is very smart, but he always got fired for lying. He got fired from his first job in journalism for lying. He made up a quotation. <laughs> okay. And the entire premise of Brexit the foundation of it was a series of deeply exaggerated, uh, you know, reports from from Brussels, you know, but I, I, I mean, he was just a, a much more, he is a much more sophisticated person than Trump. Like that's actually the truth. I mean, Trump is pretty unsophisticated. What he does boils down to like what he wants at the moment. Uh, that's about it. Um, you know, Boris Johnson, on the other hand, used some very sophisticated, uh, you know, et, like educated techniques like rhetoric um, to, to win the election. And it didn't matter that years later, it all turned out to be a pile of lies, but people really bought those lies. And, and I, I like to think about the, the red herring that he used, literally a red herring. Um, in one of the last debates uh, during the snap election that he called. So Boris Johnson uh, became a, you know, he, he was elected by the conservatives and then called an election and then beat Jeremy uh, Coburn and then, you know, forced Brexit through. And during those debates, he actually brought a fish. And of course, the red herring is a famous rhetorical device. 
And there he is standing around with the fish. And somehow this guy, Cobran, uh, you know, and for those who don't know, uh, imagine if like the Democratic Party was run by somebody to the left of Bernie Sanders, who is an anti-Semite. There's Jeremy Cobran. Uh, it's just a nutshell description. Um, I mean, these people just I, I don't know how they could, you know, choose somebody so weak to run against Boris Johnson. Um, but it shows you, I mean, how truly awful the the other side was that voters chose Boris Johnson anyway. And that's, that's move, pretty sad. Let's move on to our own rot. Uh, it's, oh, it's, yes. We well, it's say, fun to talk about somebody else's rot for a change. It is. I, I enjoy it. There's a bunch of news surrounding January 6th, and uh, I wanted to get your take on, on this. There's a new hearing on Tuesday at 10 a.m. Uh, what I've been told that this is about is uh, 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 how the white nationalist groups got involved in the first place. And why Let's call them hate they were groups. there. Let's call okay, them hate so groups. We're going to be inclusive. Groups. No, we've we've <laughs> got to be inclusive about our Republican-aligned hate groups because some of them don't fit into the traditional lines of white nationalism as well as others, right? Right. You know, I mean, they're and, they're equal opportunity haters. Right. Isn't that nice? <laughs> So Schiff, Adam Schiff says, we want to shed light on how the ma- that mob came to be there, adding that some of the upcoming hearings would touch on the different groups involved with the insurrection, the ties between them, and how they were incited. And I'm guessing that they have proof that, you know, Roger Stone, Mike Flynn were in the White House. Roger Stone probably wasn't in the White House, but Mike Flynn definitely was. Um, but he was in touch with them, and I, I would say that... Uh, Based on my information, they're going to prove that Trump incited it. He wanted it to be violent. He wanted them to use weapons. He wanted them to kill people. Um, and that just didn't happen. But um, and Schiff finishes there. The next couple of hearings will cover the run-up to January 6th, the marshalling of this mob, and appeared on the mall that day and the attack on the Capitol. So they're going to talk about this. They're going to have more witnesses. It's going to... You know, obviously spread from there. So you, your thoughts on that, your thoughts about Cipollone testifying before January 6th, and then, of course, we need to talk about the grand jury subpoenas, which we'll get to in a second. But like the new Oh, no, that's hearing. for last. Okay, let's go with January 6th first. You're like, well, here, I'm going to put some steak on your, your plate, and here's some potatoes, and here's some French fries, here's some <laughs> creamed corn, uh, and, and, and then you're like, well, I'm going to throw dessert on there now. Uh, no, 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 no. We've got to back up here. Hold on a second. So let's talk about this. The Proud Boys. Let's start with them. Um, you know, Roger Stone was involved with the Proud Boys for many, many, many years before January 6th. Okay. I mean, uh, in fact, in uh, I think it was 2018 when the Florida elections took a little bit longer than we wanted to uh, be completed in Broward County, which just happens to be where Roger Stone is located. He lives in Fort Lauderdale. Roger Stone is based in Fort Lauderdale, right? And this group is hyperactive in Fort Lauderdale. Go figure. Big surprise. They're super active in South Florida. Um, Matt Gates. He, Devin Nunes, all these folks have been deeply involved with the Proud Boys for a long time. The head of the Proud Boys even got to take a nice picture with Rick Scott before he ran for Congress as a Republican. Um, now he's in jail without bond. 
So how did they come to be there? Well, I think it's obvious. Roger fucking Stone. Hello. Um, you know, the Oath Keepers, I didn't know Stone had any links to them in the past. I'd never actually seen that. Although Stone was part of uh, the, the InfoWars crew. And I feel like the Oath Keepers had a lot of ties to, to Alex Jones uh, being more of a Western kind of organization. You know, they had, I just feel like they had a, a lot more folks out West. Um, but apparently they're all over the country. I mean, there's people from Florida that got arrested in the Oath Keepers, um, you know, being in the Capitol on January 6th. And uh, I got to tell you, you know, this shows you how a small group of people can influence a larger group of people. And there's something that actually, it applies to, this is a rule, okay? And it, it applies to online conversations. But when you think about it, it kind of applies to mobs too. When you, you know, not very conversant, but yeah, you know, mobs. Uh, it's called the 99 and 1 rule. You ever hear of that, Scott? The uh, 99 and 1 rule. Okay, so it's 90-9 and 1, okay? So the idea is that in any internet forum, 90% of the people in the forum are watching. 9% are moderating or commenting. And 1% are creating content. The 99 and 1 rule. And when you think about it, you know, there was in this huge mob that showed up uh, for Trump, probably, you know, 1% of them were like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers. And I'm not saying statistically, I'm not making a representation about a fact. I'm just, you know, throwing it out there. I'm sure somebody can sit down and uh, come up with the exact numbers one day. But, uh, you know, you're talking about a crowd of about ten to 12,000 people, from what I heard, that showed up for January 6th. Is that right, Scott? Does that sound right? Uh, uh, anyway. You know, they would, say, they would say a million people. I'm just going to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I'd say tens of thousands. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll check on the stat, but go for it. Keep going. But, yeah, I mean, so, you know, then you had, like, I think it was like 300 Proud Boys showed up and maybe a similar number of Oath Keepers or maybe a little less, something like that. Um, and then, of course, you know, like there have been, what, about seven or 800 people arrested for entering the Capitol so far? that sound about right? Seven or 800 prosecutions? Yeah, I think, well, they were take. Yeah, and then there's been hundreds of people that have, you know, pled guilty and also been convicted. Right. And, but so, I mean, the idea being that the mob was really large and then about a, a 10th of it or a ninth, you know, Oh, so 865, 865 charged and yeah. convicted. And yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think something, I forget the number, but I remember seeing somewhere that it was something like, you know, two to 3000 people entered the Capitol, something like that. 2000. Yeah. Right over 2000. Right. So, so there you have it. It's like, you know, a small group was very elite. Then a bigger group entered the Capitol 
And then a much bigger group just showed up because they thought it was a big rally. It was going to be exciting. Or maybe they just didn't want to go in or who knows what happened. They were watching. Um, so focusing on these guys, the the vanguard, the people that actually broke down all the barriers, because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the, you know, average defendants, the ones that are not charged with seditious conspiracy, um, have tried to claim that, hey, you know, we could do this because nobody stopped us. And the reason nobody stopped them is because there was a small group of thugs, terrorists, and traitors, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, who broke through all those lines, who pushed the law enforcement back and pushed them back and pushed them back until they were at the Capitol and breaking through some of the few windows that weren't reinforced, which they happened to know very well where, where they were located. So it's going to be an interesting hearing. I definitely, definitely would encourage everybody, everybody that listens to this podcast to tune in on Tuesday, July 12th from 10 to 12. And we are going to, I think, come on for our next podcast Tuesday at 1230 right afterwards. Right, Scott? Yeah, yeah right, right after they're done. And we have to verify, you know, timing and everything and make sure that but it'll be right directly after they're done uh, a few minutes after, you know, we'll, we'll uh, take our notes, get set up and make sure that we have a good show prepared. But yeah, I, we're, we're going to go live right after that. And I think a, a lot of folks like watching that and then uh, getting the commentary. And so that it seemed to work out well. Um, you know, I, I, I also, before any, anything wraps up here, the, the Georgia grand jury subpoenaed Senator Graham, Giuliani and Trump's legal team, What's happening there? Because um, here's here's the softball question of the year. They didn't subpoena Trump. Why wouldn't they subpoena Trump if it's a grand jury that's assembled? You know, it's it's a great question. I mean, obviously, I think you know as well as I do that usually the, the target of the grand jury isn't subpoenaed. But Boom. I think it might work differently in Georgia. Honestly, yeah. I think I, I've heard that they want to subpoena him, too. Um Obviously, he would have to then show up and plead the fifth. Um, you know, I, I, honestly, like, I wish that there was a little bit more involvement in our national media to find criminal defense lawyers in Georgia who can shed more light on that particular detail. Um, but there's a, a saying that prosecutors have told me in the past that you can enter the grand jury room as a witness and leave as a subject or a target. I'm talking to you, Lindsey Graham. Yeah, I he's mean, challenging this. What is that even like? I'm going to challenge this. That is a terrible response. You don't want to say I'm going to challenge this grand jury. Like it's it's that's not a good good move. Like I, I don't I think that's a move of desperation. A guy that probably expected to get it more in more trouble for it i would assume because he was part of that conspiracy to defraud well here's the thing he may have some grounds who knows we'll see what they come up with he's trying to say that he made those contacts in his official capacity as the chairman of the judiciary committee that's worse that's much it's worse. much worse it's much that's, worse he, and, he, he, his power but i mean like he's uh, 
Anyone who says that is, is nonsense because you're always representing that. You are representing them 24-7. You don't have time off. You're constantly that, uh, uh, you know, junior, the vice, whatever they're called now. Um, you're constantly representing your committee. You're constantly re- representing your uh, Senate seat. There is no time off. Like, you're always representing them. You're always representing who you... And so so I, I, I don't buy it. That I was doing it in my official capacity. No, that's another taking orders line. Like I was just taking orders. I was just taking orders uh, as the senator, and I was doing my job as a senator to investigate the election. No, you weren't. You were talking politics and campaigns and elections with Trump, and you were trying to push for Trump to win by defrauding people and by carrying on the big lie, and you knew it. And you used your official capacity to do so, which is beyond the pale. Like, and that's even for Lindsay, that's bad. You know, uh, I, I just got to say, he may have a leg to stand on. Okay, and the reason is is that the the rules that are intended to shield members of Congress from the states may give him a leg to stand on. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but. Uh, you know, the, the speech and debate clause of the Constitution actually gives members of Congress a higher level of free speech protection than even the First Amendment. And the reason is, is that we don't want members of Congress to be coerced into legislating, right? Right. So, right. It, it, you know, as much as it feels in our guts like this might be just the most frivolous piece of bullshit that Lindsey Graham has ever come up with. I am not going to discount that he may have a legal argument to keep himself out of the grand jury room. That being said, it's, you know, it's very tough to beat a grand jury subpoena. Very tough. More difficult than anything else. I mean, you see the level of difficulty that these members of the, uh, you know, that that people are, are having fighting the, the January 6th committee's subpoenas, right? I mean, uh, Steve Bannon, I think, is actually going to go on trial next week. You know, he he asked for a delay in his trial, but I I don't think that he's going to get it because he hasn't really been mentioned uh, too much. I think he made one cursory appearance, and it was from his podcast. Um, You know, I mean, (laughs) I'm just going to, read you the headline because I'm kind of Google searching this to see if the trial is happening. But uh, have you ever heard of above the law? Yeah. Okay. So above the law is this great website that reports on just, you know, legal industry matters and, and court decisions, of course. And this has to be like a parody or a, uh, you know, a commentary, but the title of this story is Steve Bannon's lawyers dress three rejected dress rejected defenses up as three raccoons in a trench coat. It's pretty funny. Um, you know, they really don't have any legs to stand on with Steve Bannon. And it was pretty apparent from the get go. Lindsay's probably got more legs to stand on here. That's all I'm going to say. All I'm going to say. OK, well, I, I, I don't like I don't have to like it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, hey, you know, you don't have to like it, but um, yeah, July 18th, Steve Bannon goes on trial for contempt of Congress. Well, we, uh, so here's my question for you. 
This is, I want your opinion on this, okay? Now think about this. Uh, Mark Meadows refused to, you know, fully testify. He did. He, he turned over a lot of information, and that's why the Department of Justice declined to prosecute him, because the committee can't say that he didn't cooperate at all. You know, like they're just at an impasse right now. But he did actually turn over a lot of stuff, right? Remember that his texts have been released for months. But, Scott, do you think that we're going to see Congress use inherent contempt and go send the sergeant at arms out to collect Mark Meadows, bring him to Congress, and compel him to testify on pain of imprisonment? No. No, I think he's going to be forced to compel uh, by making a deal after he gets indicted. I think that's that's what's going to happen. I think he'll he has to be brought to the mat legally, and I think that that's go- I think that he will get indicted. I think it's just a matter of time. Um, it's a matter of time for a lot of these people because the and what's funny is that of all the things that they didn't think that they get caught for this whole fake electors scheme, it, the laws are so stern and clear with that. That I mean, they're breaking. That's felonies in multiple states. The attempt to even do it, conspiring to even do it, thinking about even doing it, uh, like is it's just felony, felony, felony. It's just bad. It's it's really bad. So, you know, at the state level, at the federal level, um, he's got a lot of lot of issues right now. Not not only to mention the fact that he had two uh, places to register. To, to vote, or I believe is the story behind that. I mean, it, the, this dude is in deep trouble. I mean, he, he's in, in deep trouble. And if they indicted Navarro, they're not going to be afraid to indict anybody else. I mean, that's, well, that's, what, let's, let's circle back here. Why do you think that Georgia prosecutors didn't subpoena Mark Meadows to go to their grand jury? Because he actually flew to Atlanta, which, by the way, uh, reminds me of a saying that we used to laugh about when I lived in Atlanta, like a little over 20 years ago. Uh, we used to joke around that people would, uh, I, I came to Georgia on vacation and I left on probation. Why, why not? Why do you think Meadows uh, didn't get hit with this round? Or maybe do you think he's just upcoming in Georgia? I need my Jeopardy music think here. He's, yeah, I think he's. I think he's part of this. I think he's part of this entire. One of the, one of the people they're looking at in regards to criminal prosecution. I I, I just don't see how a lot of these people are going to get away with it. Um, you can't you can't let it happen just because so and so worked for so and so. And I can just tell you, if you're in Georgia, you're not going to be having Brian Kemp defend you. You're not going to be having. Uh, Stacey Abrams defend you. You don't have many people left um, that'll actually defend you. So I, 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 you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is left on your team at that point. Um, you know, you you just don't have the opportunity to to you don't have the strength that you used to, and you, you're not able to do the the same thing that uh, you, know, you you used to. You even have your neighbor going against you, Mo Brooks. You know, I mean, like. It's it's just starting to fall apart, um, and I think as we get further and further down the road, and more and more of these White House 
staffers, former White House staffers testify, um, you know, it's going to also implicate them in other crimes at the state level. And this is all going to cascade. It takes time, but I think justice will be served. Speaking of Mo Brooks, this is the part of the program where we get to tell you about the other stuff we're doing, which is the Dworkin Report. It's coming back. And the first thing we've got is a phenomenal two-part interview with none other than Michael Cohen, former personal attorney Donald J. Trump, disgraced ex-president. Well, you were the one talking. I mean, I wrote a bunch of good questions for you. What do you think? Well, we write the questions together, my friend, but you did write the Mo Brooks question. And that was uh, something that people will have to listen to. And... uh, I'll just that say Michael's like, response, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Michael, it was a question he hadn't been asked. And, you know, it, it's a lot of, a lot of things that are, are going on with, with him. You know, he's got a new book that's coming out. I believe it's called The Department of Injustice. And he talks a lot about his relationship with Donald. He talks about what he would define as, I think he defined it as an assault on Don Jr. by Trump. So him getting, uh, I don't think he said violent. I, I need to check, but uh, yeah, so it was a good conversation, um, lots of nuggets in there, and lots of information that I, I didn't know before, and I thought I knew everything, so definitely something to look out for, we'll be releasing shortly, um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, Scott, it has been a pleasure, but I think there's going to be a lot more to discuss yeah, Next we got Tuesday, Tuesday at lunchtime mm-hmm. when we return right after the next January 6th committee hearing. Absolutely. Looking forward to it, my friend. You're listening to The Report Card. 